everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Hull Tooth, a podcast all about sharks, rays, and their underwater habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm your host, Isla, and every episode I am lucky enough to be able to sit down with experts in marine science and conservation to pitch them your questions about sharks and the oceans. And speaking of brilliant questions, we are answering a very interesting one that came from a listener just before Christmas, which is how do marine animals navigate? Now, the global ocean is a pretty big place and there's no signposts or Google Maps down there. So how on earth do animals find their way around? Well, my guests today are experts in exactly that. Jessie Granger is a PhD candidate at Duke University studying animal navigation, orientation and sensory ecology, particularly how animals use magnetic and electric cues to figure out where they are and where they want to go. She has a background in biophysics and in her early career was interested in light and how it interacts with the human eye. And she explains in this episode what the link is between light and geomagnetic navigational cues. And joining Jesse, we have Kyle Newton, an expert in the migration, sensory and cognitive ecology of sharks and rays, currently working at Oregon State University. As a Save Our Seas project leader, he studied how yellow stingrays respond to magnetic stimuli to find out if they are indeed using this to navigate. And he even trained them to solve mazes and find magnets buried in the substrate, which is pretty cool. He is now trying to understand if marine renewable energies could have an impact on animal navigation, migrations and behaviour. We cover so much in this episode. Uh, Jesse and Kyle's fascinating research, how marine animals use a variety of sensory cues to navigate. And of course, the geomagnetic field, what it is and the possible ways that animals can detect this and use this to find their way around. We talk about shark superpowers, the sun having a tantrum, uh, little bacteria that kind of have no choice where they go. My little science nerd heart was so happy. Um, This is a relatively new and still pretty unexplored field. And I must admit, I felt a bit like a kid in a candy shop getting to ask these two brilliant scientists all kinds of questions about this mind boggling field. But luckily, Kyle and Jesse are very good at turning things that are mega complicated into nice, easy, bite-sized chunks. So sit back, grab a cup of tea or coffee, and listen to the crazy, fascinating world of marine navigation. Let's dive in to our episode. Jesse and Kyle, hello and welcome to the podcast. Hi, nice to nice to be here. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on. I mean, I have so much to ask you today. I, I am a complete novice to the world of geomagnetic fields and marine animal navigation. So I'm so glad that you guys are here to sort of help me answer this question. But first, I'm going to start with a question that we ask every single one of our guests on this podcast. Uh, and that is, what is your most memorable experience in the ocean? So, Jesse, I'm going to start with you. Uh, I used to spend a lot of time uh, sailing around with my dad. He he had a sailboat um, that he fixed up when we were kids, and we'd, we'd help him fix it up and paint it, and then we'd go out on these long weekends with him sailing around 
uh, the Virginia and North Carolina coast. So I, I have a lot of fond memories of hanging out with him on the ocean. Oh, amazing. And yeah, Kyle, how about you? What's your most memorable experience in the ocean? Well, you know, um, I don't know. It sort of seems like there's a bunch, but um, I would say, you know, it generally tends to center around scuba diving and interacting with, you know, animals and or just having them naturally kind of come up and be curious, like if whether it's a fish or, you know, I mean, I remember just recently when I was diving in Seattle a couple of years ago, I had, you know, chimeras of all things in shallow water during the day. And they just kind of, these were a bunch of little males came up and just were really curious in my face. And, you know, they were so close and curious, you could almost kind of boop them on the nose. It was just really adorable, quite frankly. Yeah, incredible to actually, I've never seen a chimera, so absolutely incredible to see one, let alone be close enough to actually boop one, uh, boop one on the nose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's pretty wild. It's pretty, pretty wild. So no, it's, it, again, it just sort of feels like, like a privilege, you know, you're just like kind of honored that, you know, you're, oh, you know, it's like having a cat love you versus having a dog love you. <laughs> like, you know, a dog loves everybody, but a cat is very selective, so. You must be doing something right. Yeah. I, anyway. I wonder what the, the dogs of the marine world will be. Probably seals, I guess. Yeah, I would think so. Seals, sea lions, they are very curious. Yeah, they are. <laughs> I've definitely been booped many a time by a seal, but uh, but never never a shock. But yeah, my next couple of questions are about kind of like your career journeys and how you kind of got to study what you do study. Um, and Jesse, Jesse, you've had a really interesting career journey from kind of like how light interacts in the eye to how animals you know use the magnetic field to navigate and I just wondered like what is the link between light and animal navigation and how what has your career journey looked like as you've kind of transitioned between those those subjects? Yeah so I um I always knew that I I wanted to do research um when I was a, a kid in high school uh, my high school didn't have a research option so I had designed my own research project that I ended up uh, doing in our, our biology classroom closet where I wanted to look at how people's eye color changed the way that they could see at night. So I, I spent a lot of my senior year of high school in a dark biology classroom <laughs> having a bunch of my fellow students stare at pictures of animals. And when I went to college, I, I continued to be really interested in, in light, but I... Also, was really interested in physics, and the project I, I ended up working on for my my honors thesis was looking at whether or not we could take advantage of some really unique light capturing properties of diatoms, which are single celled uh, algae. Um, see whether or not their skeletal structure, because we know it's really good at capturing light, could be used to enhance how good our solar cells are. And uh, I just became really interested in, in, in light and physics, and when I went to grad school, I joined a lab studying sensory biology, which is how animals observe the world and use that to make uh, behavioral decisions, a subset of which is, is vision, and um, a, the subset that I'm particularly interested in is, is animal navigation, so we can think about how animals use vision to move around perhaps by using landmarks like a lot of humans do. But then also, uh, I am really interested in how animals use 
magnetism and also electricity, which are the two components that make up light. So most of my research over the past three or four years has focused on how animals use the Earth's magnetic field to find their way around. Yeah, amazing. And we're going to we're going to kind of talk all about that throughout this episode. But, you know, it's just really fascinating to hear your background because it's slightly different to what we've had on the podcast before. And yeah, I, I love the idea of, of you and your, your fellow students just sitting in, in, a, in the dark in your biology room <laughs> looking at photos. Kyle, like similar sort of question to you. You've got possibly one of the coolest Twitter handles out there, which is Shark Magneto. Um, so can can you can you tell us uh, what it is that you do and how you came to study this? Yeah, I started out um, actually. I hated biology uh, in high school because, like every other person, was taking it. So I'm like, screw you! I'm going to take physics, and I love physics, and 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 I liked math a lot, and I thought that was going to be my jam, and and I did like it. Had like a bad experience in a math class and all this other stuff, and then kind of like went sidetracked and started taking a bunch of other classes, uh, astronomy, whatever. And then I actually fell into that biology class and really started to like it. But that was again in college, which is such a different experience than high school. You know, you have so much choice and, and sort of self empowerment as opposed to being kind of told what to do, or at least that's how I perceived it in high school you know, where we're at today. But, but anywho, um, you know, I was working in a lab, got a lab job. And so I've kind of always been in and out of science or, and stuff for a while and, and went to, to Miami to do, um, uh, marine biology school, so to speak, you know, be a marine biologist and all that, um, which is how I got out to Bimini. Um, and uh, originally, you know, being from Seattle, I was like, yeah, water's kind of cold, you know, screw this, let's go someplace tropical where all the Discovery Channel stuff was kind of made, you know, before Discovery Channel became what it is today. Um, and um, it was, um, you know, and that was just really, you know, that just sort of seemed to really fit. And then, um, you know, after graduating undergrad, it was you know, surprise, surprise, it's tough to find a job and, and took a took a gig in a biotech company and, and was not happy at all. And and then actually did kind of an about face because, you know, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was able to do really what I wanted to do, which was, you know, be in the water and all this. I actually went to be a freelance photographer for several years and had sort of the dreams of being, you know, underwater photographer and all that. And then, um, sort of short story long, or maybe I should say long story short, um, eventually circled back around after being kind of out in the real world for several years and, and just said, you know, I, I really just want to be back doing something that matters to me personally and went back to grad school uh, later in life and, and got my master's uh, at, at one of the Cal State campuses there in Fullerton. Yeah. And then, so, so I started, I was working, uh, doing Mako shark endothermy, uh, visceral endothermy and stuff. And, and then went on to sensory biology for my PhD. And when I was down at FAU with Steve Kajura and because he kind of let me do whatever I wanted to do, which was, you know, uh, look at, at Eliza Branks and, and start doing, uh, magnetic field, uh, experiments. And so after that did a, a postdoc, which I just finished, um, in of all places, Missouri, 
<laughs> working with larval zebrafish. I know, right? Talk about circuitous path. And then that's, that's actually led me to my current position at Oregon State, where I'm actually looking at how electromagnetic fields from offshore energy uh, infrastructure impacts uh, marine wildlife. So potentially foraging and navigation behavior. So yeah, yeah. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. And I just started like two weeks and two days ago. So everything's new, but it's great to be back on the West Coast because that feels like home. We were talking about it just a little bit there, but you know, we're going to learn a lot about the the geomagnetic field and Earth's magnetic fields and how exactly marine animals use us to navigate and how you're both kind of researching this. But first, I wondered if we could talk a little bit about kind of like what we know so far. So I imagine, you know, the ocean is a vast place and lots of different species will use probably a combination of things to, to find their way around. So um, you know, some of which we probably don't even know yet. So I, I wanted to ask you both, you know, what are the kind of most popular theories on how animals find their, their way around? So, uh, Jesse, I don't know if you want to want to start us off on this one. Great. So I think um, the first thing that's important to think about is, is what sort of scale you're looking at for an animal to move over. So if you're thinking about an animal that's going out on a foraging trip and coming back, it's very likely if they have a good visual system, they'd be using landmarks of some kind. Um, but a lot of what I look at are animals doing these really long distance migrations, sometimes crossing almost the entirety of the globe. And in that case, there's a really limited number of cues they could be using, especially if it's their first time making this trip and they, they don't have any landmarks they could be using. Sometimes animals use olfactory cues. They might be smelling things nearby, but if you're an animal moving over that kind of scale, there aren't going to be any stable um, smells that you could take advantage of. You might not know of any landmarks. So you kind of boil down your options to basically either something celestial, so using some sort of star map, using a sun compass, um, or using geomagnetic cues, so the Earth's magnetic field itself. And certainly both of those make it pretty easy to do movements north to south, but how animals kind of find their way east to west is still a really big mystery. There aren't a ton of cues that line themselves up in such a way to really figure that out. So it, it's certainly a big question that we're, we're digging around. I know if I were an animal trying to make that long of a, of a trip, I wouldn't make it. I'd get lost immediately. <laughs> yeah, they don't have Google Maps, do they? <laughs> Without my Google Maps, I don't think I can even get into work. <laughs> Isn't it funny how we've come to rely on that? <laughs> it, it is. It is. It's quite ridiculous. Like I was, I was thinking the exact same the other day. I could not find my way around without Google Maps. And that's really sad. Um, <laughs> yeah. Did you mention a solar compass? Jesse. Um, yes, you, could, you can use the sun as a compass, but it also requires that you have some way to tell what time of day it is because the sun's going to move across the sky. So if you know what time of day it is and you can see the sun, you can kind of use that as, as a compass reference system, which a lot of animals do. Um, I think one of the most notable ones here in North America are the monarch butterflies. Fascinating. Amazing. Yeah, so there's so many different ways and obviously this is a huge subject area and there's you know as you said there's a lot of question marks and um, Kyle do you have do you have anything you'd like to add to that question you know I, I think that <clears throat> Jesse brings up a really good point of like spatial temporal scale um, 
And then, of course, queue availability, because we think about it being in a terrestrial environment. You know, visibility is much better uh, in a terrestrial environment. Like on a clear day, you can see for several miles or kilometers. Um, whereas underwater, on a clear day, you might get 100 meters if you're lucky. Um, but then acoustic, what about acoustic cues? I mean, you know, so it's like if you're a cetacean, you know, acoustic cues can travel much further underwater than they can due to the density of the medium versus air. So we also have to consider the medium as well. Um, Jesse brought up the whole idea of, of olfactory cues. They're really great over short distances. I mean, God forbid you want to go to Burger King, but when you smell a Burger King, you know you can sort of hone your way in on it. But thankfully, that smell of Burger King doesn't waft too far down the road, you know. And I think it's the same. It's the same sort of thing with you know underwater. It's like olfactory cues, which you know if you're a salmon or or something trying to smell your way home to your natal stream, that works really good over relatively short distances, maybe. You know, but then those particles disperse really pretty rapidly. So we have to kind of also think of the medium too. So there's a there's a lot of things to to consider. Um, and again, we kind of get back to the physics of it and how things you know light trans or trans is transmitted differently in water, and there's absorption of certain spectra and all that. So back to you know what was said earlier is is the idea of what's kind of cool about the geomagnetic field is it's it's ubiquitous it kind of penetrates everything and it's always there it's kind of omnipresent and kind of goes through most every sort of um uh, material so it's kind of always there it's it's like you know it's like your little friend on your shoulder kind of maybe telling you what to do <laughs> or at least giving you hopefully a sense of where you might be and where you want to go so yeah so almost that is almost kind of like what google maps has become for us then really is kind of like that little voice that you have in your car <laughs> <laughs> but yeah oh god right <laughs> <laughs> but we're we're so we're onto this already um so we're kind of talking about geomagnetic magnetic field and for someone who is a complete novice i.e me uh, on this subject can you explain what this actually is? So I guess here's here's the here's the big question is is if I say a, the the magnetic field around a bar magnet, kind of what do you what do you mm. do you have an image of that in your head of what what that might look like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Back to high school, high school physics, everybody. Come Back on. to high school, yeah. <laughs> so so if you have a bar magnet. If you have a bar magnet, and sometimes you'll see, like, in, in high school physics, they'll, like, sprinkle some, like, uh, like iron particles around it so it lines up with the field. And you'll see that the lines come out of one end, and then they curve all the way around and come back in at the top. That's kind of what the Earth's magnetic field looks like. We, we're, we're almost positive, we're very sure that what's creating the Earth's magnetic field is the molten iron in, in the core that's kind of moving around. Um, and it's generating this this uh, field that goes all the way out the South Pole around and wraps back into the North. And um, kind of when we're when we're talking uh, magnetoreception wise, there are a couple of ways that we we like to classify that. So the first is just how strong is it? So that field's going to be really strong in the South Pole and really strong in the North Pole, and it gets a little weaker around the equator. And we can also talk about the direction that it's pointing. So if you're if you're coming out of the South Pole, you're pointing down, and then you're going to wrap around so that you're kind of flat 
to the ground around the equator, and you keep wrapping and you point in towards the North Pole. And that angle that it's pointing in relative to the ground, we call the inclination angle. So how, how much is it pointing towards the ground? And then we also have, you can call the like uh, polarity of it, which is going to be the X component of, of that vector. I'm sorry, I'm trying, I'm trying to avoid jargon, but so like how much that, that line is pointing towards the North Pole, uh, not how much it's pointing towards the ground, but how much it's pointing side to side. And we actually, as humans, use that all the time with our compasses. That's going to be pointing in, in the direction of north, that x component of the field. If we had a compass that could also tilt up and down, we would actually be able to see the inclination as well. So when we're talking about animal sensing the magnetic field, we often talk about it using the intensity. We talk about it using the inclination. We don't very often talk about it using the polarity. Instead, we often will refer to something called the declination angle, which is how different that angle pointing towards north is in the magnetic field from where north, like the geological north, actually is. We call that the declination angle. So those are kind of the, the big components of the magnetic field. I don't know, Kyle, if, if I missed anything or if you want to chime in in any way. <laughs> No, I think that's great. I think that's great. I think that that's actually perfect. Yeah. So actually, you know, what's really interesting is, is um, when I was doing my experiments, you know, back in the day, if if uh, downloading a, a magnetometer app is actually really cool. So you can get them there. There's free ones and stuff like that for your phone. And you can start to see those components in sort of XYZ space because there is kind of a 3D, you know, they are vectors. And one of the two things about vectors or there's two quantities about vectors. There's a magnitude or, you know, an intensity and a direction. And that's what this is. And if you download the app, you can start to see it in real time. And so you can illustrate that, 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 uh, that property that Jesse was talking about where there's the angle and, you know, the difference intensity, like on locations of the earth and stuff like that. So we always think of this sort of component of north to south, you know, the two opposite poles, kind of like poles of, uh, of electric fields. You know, there's a north and a south sometimes, or at least, you know, within the field. And so um, it's very similar to that. And, and but, but we don't often think of there being an angle relative, you know, that inclination angle relative to the surface of the earth. And whether it's parallel or if it is, you know, perpendicular to it, like at the poles, like you mentioned. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for that. Because, I mean, it's so complex. I knew it was, I knew it was going to be complex. I feel like I've gone back to school, but in like, in a really good way. Um, <laughs> and I can picture that, picture that diagram in my head of, you know, what we used to look at in our, in our, you know, high school textbooks of the magnets. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really cool to think that there's lots of different aspects to it I mean this this question we haven't we haven't put it on the list but it's just something that I was you know wondering and I can imagine someone at home might be wondering is you know why don't we feel that so I know we we use the geomagnetic field for compasses and things like that but you know why don't all of our metal like belt buckles sort of like <laughs> pull us to the to the poles well uh so I guess there's there's two things here the first is that um not all metal material is magnetic, so your belt buckle probably isn't. Um, 
But also, the Earth's magnetic field is really weak. Mm -hmm. It's not mm -hmm. very strong at all, which is part of why we didn't think animals would be able to sense it for so long. Yeah. It's like, this is so tiny. How could any animal ever actually be using it? Um, especially like if you're just comparing to your fridge magnet. Yeah, your I was just fridge magnet that. is so much stronger than the Earth's magnetic field. Absolutely. Yeah, you're, you're totally right. It is. And those, I think, are the magnets that we're used to, you know, like the one in physics, the bar magnet, the fridge magnet, where it you can actually, like, if you take two magnets and you can feel them, you know, really pull and then they, they snap together, you know, or something. Yeah, Jesse's right. It's, it, we're talking several orders of magnitude less than that. Um, so it's, it is, it's very imperceptible. Okay, well, thank you very much for feeding my curiosity there. Just like, honestly, just a question just popped into my head, but um, so how you, so if, like you said, like if the Earth's magnetic field is so weak, how do animals then sense this? I mean, I know that we're still probably finding this out, but I mean, Kyle, you mentioned electroreceptors earlier. I wondered if you could sort of maybe go into a bit more detail about that. The, the real difficulty is that nobody's found an actual magnetoreceptor, like a proper, like, like you know, we can have photoreceptors and, um, you know, the sensory hair cells in our ear, that sort of stuff. But nobody has actually found a magnetoreceptor proper. There's three different sort of ideas where there's like a proper magnetoreceptor that actually has iron oxide, you know, magnetite in it that can orient like those iron filings, you know, with or sort of along those magnetic field lines. And then we think that that could be a way. So that sort of orientation within a particular receptive cell or series of cells could, you know, maybe create some sort of torsion on a cell membrane and give an animal some sort of ability to detect that cue. The um, radical pair of sort of hypothesis of Oh, I know I'm totally going to make a mistake about it, so I'm not going to go down that road. I think Jesse's going to be better about it. But really, I'll, I'll talk about yeah more about uh, the electroreceptors. So the hypothesis that, that uh, has been pitched for a while originally came about, or at least was popularized, <clears throat> by uh, Ad Kalmin. If it wasn't for Ad, you know, a lot of us doing uh, electroreceptive work in, in a Lazarbrink, uh, we wouldn't really be where we are today. And Ad actually just recently died. He was uh, at uh, UC uh, San Diego at Scripps. But he, he really was the first to demonstrate that uh, Lazarbrinks use their electroreceptors to detect the bioelectric fields of prey. And so he'd also proposed that their electroreceptors are so sensitive, um, and and the current understanding is that they can detect about a nanovolt per centimeter, which is really, really, really weak. So sometimes people think that, or people have sort of used the idea, if you took a nine volt battery and put one pole, like the positive pole in New York, and the negative pole in in London the difference in polarity or the difference in that voltage there is on the order or sort of equivalent to what a, an elasobrite could detect. So that's how sort of, to give you an idea of maybe how sort of sensitive they could be. That is theoretically sensitive enough to detect the induced electric field created as an animal swims through a magnetic field in a conductor. And so it gets back to physics with the right hand rule where 
if you are going through a magnetic field within a conductive medium, such as seawater, because of all the ions and stuff, you will actually induce an electric field around the animal. And depending upon where you are latitudinally, you know, according to the strength, if you're closer to the poles, so the field would be, the magnetic field would be stronger, you might induce a stronger electric field. But then it's also sort of a function of your direction that you're swimming through the field. And you tend to create a stronger magnetic field if you're going um, one particular direction versus another. So it gets a little complicated um, without kind of visual aids, but that's kind of at least the, the sort of the working hypothesis behind that. And there is some electrophysiological evidence that uh, was done um, late 70s, early 80s in Russia, where um, some physiologists had taken uh, recordings of electroreceptors or at least the afferent neurons and the, the secondary neurons connected to uh, electroreceptors and they did it in skates and um, they, they could you know change a magnetic field around these animals and or they, they found that the um, electroreceptors would actually respond to that. So it's this kind of indirect mechanism. It's not a direct detection and so it might not be called magnetoreception proper because you're kind of using, you're kind of detecting an induced electric field created by moving through the magnetic field. So that's kind of at least the working hypothesis for sharks and rays and chimeras and all that kind of stuff. I think, Jesse, what do you have to say about, you know, your perception and your side of things? Because you, you definitely have, uh, I think, a lot more knowledge, I would think, on the, especially on the photoreceptor side of things. Sure. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd like to just re-emphasize what you said, Kyle, absolutely. Like, we don't know. <laughs> it's a million-dollar question. How do animals sense magnetic fields? We'd like to know as well. <laughs> um, and the problem, that really, the big problem here is that unlike almost every other sensory cue that animals use, magnetic fields can permeate your body. Like, like photons can't. So whatever organ is being used to sense light has to be on the surface of the body. Whatever organ is being used to sense sound is probably also going to be located really close to the surface. Like we know what that structure needs to look like in order to actually interact with, with the world outside. But magnetic fields can go through your whole body. So that organ, whatever organ it is they're using to do that, could be anywhere. And the, uh, the metaphor a lot of people use for this is it's like searching for a needle in a needle stack. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so hard to find. Um, and again, we have a couple of hypotheses that we've been able to show some evidence in support of, some evidence against. But the truth is, it's a we don't know. And like Kyle said, there, the I'd say the three big ones right now are are your your magnetite base receptor, which actually there's one animal that we do know how it senses magnetic fields. <gasps> okay, you're, ooh, you're the right. The magnetotactic right, bacteria. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right, I, I forgot. <laughs> Which I think is a great way to kind of give give sort of an idea of what a magnetotactic um, way of sensing the field is in other animals. So our magnetotactic bacteria, these little bitty bacteria that have a string of magnetite particles in their body. You can imagine they have like a, a needle in their body that's going to actually twist them into alignment with the Earth's magnetic field. So they don't have much 
choice in what direction they want to be facing. They kind of have to face in line with the Earth's magnetic field, and that's how they're doing it. Um, and, and generally the idea of why they want to do that is it helps them kind of find um, areas that are more favorable in terms of like the oxygen ratio in the areas where they're living. And, and, I'm, and I'll list the other two hypotheses as well. I want, I want to make it clear that it's also possible that a lot of different animals have different ones. Like not all animals need to have the same receptor. And maybe some animals even have multiple. Like it, it's possible that they're using several different ways of doing this. Yeah, I mean, I've got a doctorate, but in a completely different field. I know nothing about this. And it's just so joyful and like so fascinating to hear just how complex this is and just how much there is still, you know, left to learn about what these animals do. I mean, we've in Save Our Seas, we were about, you know, we've got a project called Super Sharks, which is all about shark superpowers. And like, it definitely seems like they've got some sort of superpower. I mean, the, the, what they're detecting just seems completely like mind boggling out of this world. And then also the idea that somewhere is these little bacteria that are just, you know, spinning around and sort of have no kind of real control over where they're going. It's just basically where the magnetic field takes them. It's just so incredible. Um, and honestly, I could listen to you both talk all day. It's, it's amazing. And it's making my little nerd heart very happy. <laughs> but I thought we could maybe talk a little bit about your kind of individual research and sort of get into what it is you both kind of individually look at. Um, so Kyle, I was going to come to you first about your work with uh, yellow stingrays. And I wondered if you could tell our listeners a little bit about how you have tested for magnetic cues in yellow stingrays. Okay, um, sure. Well, there's not a lot of stuff that's been done on elasmobranchs, so sharks, skates, rays. Um, some of them, there was, you know, some stuff by Ad Kalmin back in the day, and he did stuff on round stingrays, which are a sister species to yellow stingrays. And, you know, some other, um, some other studies. So there was uh, some stuff out of Hawaii. The point is, is there, there just wasn't much done. So, and, and a lot of things or at least a lot of these uh, magnetoreceptive studies rely on animals that kind of could or that would naturally orient to a given direction if you kind of leave them alone. At least that's, that's kind of, there's a lot of studies that are kind of based on that, which is a great place to start. I was, uh, you know, like I said, I was, I was at, in Florida and um, we didn't really have, at least I couldn't pick up on, on any local species that would be really suitable for, you know, that naturally oriented into a given direction. When you do uh, stuff in the lab with magnetoreception, you need a lot of space because the animals need to kind of move through space and time in order to sample the sort of the magnetic sort of the ambient magnetic field. So that puts limits on the size of the animal you can use. Also, if you're going to create magnetic fields and you use a, a coil system, those coils get, you know, the more space you need, the bigger the coils have to be. And so it gets prohibitive. And so I started using yellow stingrays, which are not very big. Um, and they're, they're about the size of a dinner plate or, you know, like a, a large tablet computer or a laptop or whatever. And, but again, they, they didn't naturally orient in a given direction. So I had to start being creative and looking at the bird literature and various other things. And 
I decided on behavioral conditioning. So the reason I went that way is, is because, uh, well, we can't necessarily pick up on the magnetic field, so we don't really know what to look for. But if you do with behavioral conditioning, or if you're trying to see what an animal can perceive in a sensory capability, and you can't really talk to them. I mean, I talk to my cat all the time, and he just answers, you know, with meow. So we have some communication issues, but we're still in a good relationship, just, just so that, you know, just to make sure. But no, it's like you, you have to kind of do... Think back to Pavlov and, you know, and that sort of uh, conditioning that, 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 that he had demonstrated. And if you can, if you can sort of pair in space and time, so at, uh, two different stimuli, you might be able to, based on the behavior of the animal, determine whether or not it can detect a particular stimulus. So I would change the ambient magnetic field, say like the, um, the strength or the intensity of it, as you know, Jesse had talked about earlier, or the inclination angle. And then I would pair that. So as I change the magnetic field, one particular parameter of it, I would either pair it with, let's see, I actually use an aversive stimulus. So I'd give them like a, I'd kind of poke them at the tail and they don't like to be poked at the tail with like a, a, a little like a glass rod or something like that. So it was kind of aversive and they would kind of like, oh, they would shuttle across the, the tank. So as I changed the magnetic field and I would kind of poke them at the tail, eventually they start to learn that if, if, if the change in the magnetic field indicates that, oh, I'm going to get poked in the tail, I'm going to skedaddle to the other side of the tank. And so when they learn that, it tells you a couple of different things. First, it actually tells you that they can learn. So you're like, okay, they can, they can sort of associate these two different stimuli that are not naturally associated, whether it's food or a poke of the tail or whatever. That's the whole conditioning part. But more importantly, fundamentally, it tells you that they can detect that original neutral stimulus, you know, that, that's not naturally associated with food or getting poked. So if the stingrays could not detect the change in the magnetic field, there's no way they would learn to associate that change in magnetic field with a food reward or a poke at the tail or whatever it is. So that's the premise behind behavioral conditioning. It's like Pavlov's dogs, they, he would ring a bell. Now, granted, it was slightly different because he was looking at a physiological reaction, like an, autono an automatic thing. But anyways, the principle is the same. If the dog couldn't hear the bell, if it was at a frequency that the dog could not detect, you would never have been able to successfully do that experiment. So that's basically the premise of what I was doing with the yellow stingrays. We had were able to sort of demonstrate earlier that they could, I could train them to use the the location of a buried magnet as a as a indicator of like a food reward, kind of like. You know, and I got that idea from people doing it with pigeons and corvids and all this other kind of stuff. Like, oh, you know, they can just use a magnetic field to say, oh, there's a food cache over here or something like that. So I'd be like, oh, why don't we just do the same thing with stingrays? And lo and behold, they could do it. If I buried a magnet at a random location, over time, they would learn to associate that change in the magnetic field with a food reward. And they would start to dig the magnets up and get really you know, they would get cranky if they didn't get their food reward. Like they're throwing the magnets around the arena. It was actually pretty adorable. But that was like another basis. I'm like, okay, well, they can actually detect a magnetic field. Let's see what qualities of the magnetic field they can detect. You know, like back to, again, can they detect, you know, 
different parameters like the strength of it, the inclination angle. Can we change those individual parameters and they can still sort of learn, you know, to associate that with a different kind of stimulus. And, and lo and behold, they could. And actually the really great thing that happened after that is um, some other folks. So Brian Keller, Nathan Putman, they had done a study recently that came out, I think it was not, not quite a year ago that was in current biology where they took bonnet head sharks and they put them in an arena and they changed the local magnetic field. Um, so what I demonstrated that, that it is that uh, stingrays or maybe a lazarbranchs in general could detect various parameters of their magnetic field. What Brian was able to do was that bonnet heads could actually use the Earth's magnetic field to determine where they are and where they want to go. So again, an idea of, of their current location relative to where they'd like to go. And then they can sort of change their orientation as if they're like, oh no, I need to get back home. So they demonstrated that Elasmobranchs can actually use the magnetic field to navigate or to, to, to do these properties of navigation, which was really, really cool. Mm, yeah. I mean, speaking of shark superpowers, just absolutely incredible. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I was actually, funnily enough, this doesn't sound related, but it is. Um, I was giving a little talk earlier to some school kids about sharks. And one of the questions they asked me was, you know, are sharks very intelligent? Um, and I actually used your, I, I used your study as an example to show them that, that yes, yes, they are. Yeah, yeah. It's like really, really cool stuff. Um, and yeah, it's, it's fascinating to know kind of like, because obviously a lot of their life is shrouded in mystery. So it's fascinating to know like how they could possibly, uh, you know, even begin to navigate the oceans. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, Jesse, for your work, um, you've looked at some different species and you've mainly kind of studied, you know, slightly different things. So for some of your work, you've kind of used agent-based models to look at how animals use magnet magnetic incl inclination. I can't say that magnetic inclination to cross the earth. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so I, I'm, I'm kind of a fake biologist. I, I don't actually work directly with any animals. I, I work with data. I work with often animal data, but then sometimes I, I make up my own animal data. So I'll make these computer models where we will will make a fake earth and a fake animal and ask if you're trying to get from point A to point B, um, how how could you do it in these in these different ways and how well does that reflect what animals do in the real world. Um, and, and like I said, a lot of what we look at are these really long distance um, trips. And one thing that's really nice about the Earth's magnetic field is that it, it does actually change a little bit. Um, we, we like to call it a ubiquitous signal like our GPS, but it, it shifts over time. Um, imagine your GPS slowly, slowly started putting your home slightly farther away, sometimes by a couple of miles every year. And then it'll it'll shift on a on a daily cycle. It shifts as the sun, or as the Earth rotates, and the sun kind of pushes the Earth's magnetic field to one side. And then we'll actually have these like really random, crazy changes to the Earth's magnetic field whenever the sun uh, has what we'll call a solar storm. Sometimes you call it the sun pitches a tantrum fit, and it it kind of ejects 
a whole bunch of energy and particles at us, and that can really mess up the Earth's magnetic field. And that actually is awesome for us, not for an animal trying to use the magnetic field, but because that provides essentially um, a way for us to look at how animals res respond to that. And we can say things about their magnetic sense. So if I'm looking at uh, data from animals that have made a journey, a really long distance journey over years, five, ten years, we can start to look at, well, how does their trip that they're taking change from year to year? And how does that reflect how the Earth's magnetic field was changing? Or if all of a sudden something goes really wrong, um, this is some of the work we, we did with uh, whale strandings. It was something goes really wrong and all of a sudden you can't tell where you are. Maybe you end up running into land. Does that match up with when the sun starts pitching these big fits? Do we see correlations between what we'd call a disrupted magnetic sense and animals that are no longer able to migrate the way that they normally do? And so we'll, we'll look at animal data, sometimes telemetry data, sometimes like I said, the stranding data, and then sometimes we'll match that up to some of the modeling that I do trying to predict how these changes would actually affect animals in the real world. I wanted to continue that conversation about the whale strandings data. So did you actually find that these, by the way, I love the idea that the sun can have a tantrum. That's great. I'm going to take that away with me. But these, these kind of solar storms, did you find that they coincided more with uh, whale stranding? Yes, we were looking at um, the, the grey whales, which are on the west coast where Kyle is. And we were, we were looking at how much the grey whale strandings correlated to when the, earth, or when the sun was having a solar storm. And we were able to show that they're happening much more often. Um, when a solar storm happens, then you would expect from random and, and then specifically correlated to a couple of these different factors of the Earth's magnetic field that we're looking at and also um, some of the like RF noise that we were talking about before. And this isn't just, um, not just in the gray wells that I've looked at, there's actually been several other researchers that have looked at this and, and a couple of other species. I know there's been some work in England with sperm whales that has also shown that there's um, correlations to uh solar storms as well so it's a uh, it's definitely seems like maybe there's something there but of course correlation isn't causation and it may have nothing to do with the magnetic sense at all <laughs> yeah yeah but still like a really a really fascinating theory and it'll be interesting to see how that develops and speaking of you know factors that might potentially disturb how marine animals use these sensory cues to navigate, is there anything else that we that we know of that could potentially interrupt that process? Um, yeah, so there's you know um, potentially the sun, uh, and then also RF noise. If an animal is using a radical pair mechanism, like we talked about before, um, radio frequency electromagnetic noise would disturb it, and we've actually seen. Not necessarily, I, I'm not sure actually there's been any work done uh, in marine animals, but we have seen in some species of birds that if you're trying to conduct a magnetoreceptive experiment on a campus really close to school, the birds aren't able to use their magnetic sense and you kind of have to move farther away. So we do have evidence that just human anthropogenic RF noise coming from all of our electric devices, like our phones or even our cars, could actually be disturbing some of these animals. And that certainly could end up being a problem for some of these marine species as well, though RF does get kind of absorbed 
by water, it would probably be able to penetrate deep enough to be a problem to especially any animal that's migrating closer to the surface. And then Kyle, I'm sure, has some other thoughts on some other thoughts on maybe any sort of ambient electric fields coming from, I don't know, are there like power lines running through the ocean that are a problem? <laughs> that was actually the perfect segue. It's almost like I paid you to do that. <laughs> I mean, sure. No, I, I would I would agree. Um, the Biden administration is developing uh, or wants to, they're really pushing for the development of offshore renewable energy, which I think is generally a good thing because fossil fuels and climate change and all that. I mean, I, I definitely believe that getting away from fossil fuels to something more renewable is the smarter play in the long term. But, you know, there could be some impacts that we're not necessarily aware of. When you have these offshore wind farms or wave energy converters or what have you, they take that kinetic energy from wave motion from uh, ocean currents, say like the Gulf Stream or uh, wind, and they will convert that kinetic energy into electricity. And then that electricity is you know, generated at a high voltage, and then it's transmitted through cables back to shore, where everybody can have things like air conditioning and refrigeration and what have you. The issue is those high voltage cables. So electric and magnetic fields, they're kind of, I like to think of them, they're inextricably linked, kind of like heads and tails on a coin. You can't necessarily have one without the other. And even though you can insulate a wire or a cable, you can't necessarily shield those magnetic artifacts that are shed into the water with the transmission of high voltage uh, electrical current. And so the thought is that maybe those magnetic fields that are emitted that we can't shield could be impairing or uh, somehow affecting magnetically sensitive species. So the problem is, is we think maybe potentially these cables could be altering the geomagnetic landscape on a local sort of scale. So if animals uh, are migrating through some of these wind farms that are being produced, they could come across these cables and they could act maybe as something that confuses the animal. It could act as at least maybe um, a barrier, you know, not, not necessarily like an electric dog fence, but kind of. But we don't know if it's actually aversive. In other words, like, do they sort of freak out and turn around? Is it attractive? Like, do they go, ooh, what's this? This is really curious. Maybe I want to chew on it, you know? And so we don't necessarily know what's going to happen but I'm a big fan of like saying, okay, let's do the renewable energy thing. I think it's going to happen regardless of whether we want it to or not. Let's figure out, can we be on the, the sort of the, can we sort of get out front of it and figure out, okay, these are going to be the impacts or the potential impacts on electrically and magnetically sensitive species. Because if you start to mess with the ability of animals to navigate, or the ability of them to find food, you know, we could start to in incur changes in foraging behavior, changes in migratory behavior, navigational behavior. And so that could have ecological effects. Um, if it's uh, ecologically important as a meso predator or, or more of an apex predator, like a lot of the lazarbanks, um, it could shift the distributions of these animals. I mean, we just, we really just don't know. And that's the whole basis or the impetus behind the research that we're trying to mm. get started. Yeah. I mean, it's, a very interesting thing to keep an eye on really because i i haven't heard much about about that specific impact or potential impact of renewable energies you know you hear a lot about the acoustic side of things mm -hmm. but not so you much do. kind of like 
the, the the sort of electrical or magnetic issues that might occur from that and I I, I do I do agree with you I, th- I think that renewable energies and things like that are, is something that should happen and is is inevitable but you know as well it's it, it, it is bound to have impacts on species and, and that's something that we really need to keep an eye on. I, I could honestly listen to the pair of you talk all day. It's <laughs> such an interesting subject, but I won't do that. I won't keep you all day. So I'm just gonna I'm I'm gonna bring it to a close. And um, so I just want to ask, you know, if people want to find out more about you and find out more about your work, where can they head? So Jesse, I'll come to you first. Uh, well, okay. So I have I do have a Twitter. I don't use it terribly often. Um, I have one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> I'll def- I definitely use it whenever I publish a paper. Um, and then I also have a website that um, I-, I keep on top of slightly better that I'm happy to share a link with you um, if you'd like to, to share that anywhere. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah, we'll-, we'll pop it in the show notes and then we have a web page for everybody as well so you can learn more about our guests. Um, so yeah, I will pop that in there. And, and and Kyle, how about you? Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. Yeah, I have a Twitter handle and an Instagram and all that. And I don't think I've ever posted anything on my Instagram, even though I have followers for some reason. Um, <laughs> but my Twitter handle, like you said, is at Shark Magneto. There's that. And I do have a website, which actually I have a domain, but I need to get it hosted. But it's the same thing, sharkmagneto.com. So maybe now I actually need to get that thing up and running. Now there's pressure with the podcast now, but... <laughs> People can also find me. I did just start uh, a position at Oregon State uh, University out at Hatfield and the Marine. And so we're kind of getting some stuff up on the Hatfield website for me where people can sort of uh, at least sort of contact me, um, kyle.newton at oregonstate.edu is definitely, it's my email address. So if anybody has any questions, I'm more than happy to. Uh, try and interact or if they want to you know do a zoom call or or whatever or even if they want to complain well maybe not totally I don't want to play therapist (laughs) but I understand the struggles of grad school and stuff and and you know we're not alone and it's a it's a really really tough it's a tough road to hope especially when you feel like you're by yourself so um, you can reach out to somebody can maybe just help you sort of navigate you know whatever you're you might be going through if 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 you're sort of feeling that (laughs) Oh my God. Oh, it's like I actually did that. I didn't. Uh, no, oh. just pretend, pretend you did. <laughs> pretend you did. That was, that was a brilliant circle back. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that was perfect. I didn't even do it. I mean, that's one of the times that I didn't actually like, you know, pun intended. So that was totally not intended. <laughs> I just have, before I let you go, I just have one final question. And again, it's a question that we ask every single guest on this podcast. It's a very silly one, but it is our favorite. And that is, if you could be any species of shark or ray in the world, what would you be and why? Okay, Jesse, go. I want to hear what you have to say. I had to just think about it. I think I came up with one. <laughs> like I said, I, I, I am a, I'm a fake biologist. I, I, I'll admit I'm not familiar with a ton of different species of sharks and rays. <laughs> so I feel like I'm just going to have to go with the really basic answer which is the great the great white sharks seem fun. They're <laughs> big. <laughs> they navigate. They live a long time also. That's exciting. <laughs> and their teeth, their teeth change out. I love that. 
that seems really nice. I'd like to have not have to take care of my teeth as much as I do, you know? I'd like, I'd just like to get a fresh set every now and then. That would be really handy, wouldn't it? Yeah, no flossing, no nothing. Yeah, that would be super handy. No trips to the dentist. <laughs> just let them fall out. Yeah, right. Great whites are awesome, so... So yeah, and um, that was a great answer. And Kyle, how about you? I would go, you know, with one of the things uh, that I had a, a really fun personal experience with, and it's kind of local here in Oregon, or at least south of here, and it's the uh, bat rays. They're just really freaking cute with that little kind of duck face that they have. And they're, um, so the California bat ray is really awesome. And when you see like a little baby ray, Oh God, they're so bloody adorable. They just fit like in your hand and they're just, they're just so freaking cute. They're, they're kind of like little puppies. And so I would kind of go bat ray seems kind of like I could, I could be a bat ray for a minute, you know, that would be, they kind of perch up on their, their fins and kind of check stuff out. And yeah, I don't know. Bat toids are, I think, underappreciated and, and they have big brains. They have really big brains. All those little, those benthic, benthic stingrays and stuff, they have really big brains. And so I think maybe I'd rather be one of the smarter elastobranks, not unlike a basking shark. So, so <laughs> clever and cute. Clever and yes. cute. That's a great week there to go, go down. Yeah, we haven't actually had, had either of them before. So, yeah, great answers. Believe it or not, no one's picked a great white yet. So, what? there you are. You're oh, the first, Jesse. Man. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess I feel a little better then. <laughs> A little vindicated, yeah, yeah. May, or maybe everyone awesome. else is trying to avoid it because they thought it was the obvious answer. And I... That's kind of what I was yeah. thinking. And you're like, you know, screw it. I'm just going to go with the obvious you one. You know, sometimes your your first thought is the best thought. Exactly. That's true. Go with your exactly. gut. Exactly. Right. I'm going to let you both go, but it's been so wonderful to talk to both of you. And I just wanted to say a great big thank you for all of your time and your amazing answers and guiding someone like me, who is a complete novice in this area through the incredible world of marine navigation. Thank you both so, so much. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. This has been great. I really appreciate it. This podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It was hosted and edited by me, Isla Hodgson. Our beautiful artwork is by Nicola Poulos. And the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. A huge thank you to Jesse and Kyle for all their time and knowledge. If you want to find out more about them, you can find links to them and their work in the write-up of this episode. And thank you at home for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, pitch a question or suggest a podcast topic, we'd love to hear from you. Just drop an email to isla at savearseas.com. You can get in touch with us on social media. We're on Instagram at Save Our Seas Foundation and Twitter at Save Our Seas. And if you like this episode, please be sure to rate, review and subscribe. It means so much to us. It helps more people to find this podcast and more people to find out about how awesome sharks are. All right. Have a jawsome week and I'll see you next time.